Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm Not Using It. I'm Ollie Henderson and in today's episode I'm delighted to bring you an interview that I've been trying to set up since before this podcast first launched last year. Through listening to his podcast and reading his newsletter, I've learned a huge amount about emerging technology and its impact on the world. Along the way, he's introduced me to some of the world's leading thinkers on all manner of subjects like artificial intelligence and automation, genomics and biotech. Since many of the topics are complex and can appear intimidating to the layperson, it takes a skilled presenter to make the shows accessible. And that's exactly what Azim Azar achieves. Azim is the creator of Exponential View, Britain's leading platform for in-depth tech analysis. 200,000 people read his weekly newsletter and his podcast produced with Harvard Business Review has featured guests including Yuval Noah Harari, Rebecca Henderson, Reid Hoffman and Tony Blair. The founder of a number of successful tech companies, Azar is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Futures Council, sits on the board of the Ada Lovelace Foundation and is a contributor to publications including the FT, Prospect and the MIT Technology Review. We discuss the effect of automation and AI on the future of work, the impact of big tech's power and what we should do about it, decentralized organizations, and the risks presented by the growth of poor quality personal data. I really enjoyed this fascinating conversation, and it was a great taster for what you can hear if you listen to a Zoom show or read his upcoming book, Exponential. I'm sure you'll find it as interesting as I did. Before we start, as ever, if you enjoy this show, I'd love it if you could rate it and subscribe. Also, check out my newsletter, Future Work Life on Substack. The link is in the show notes, along with some other references from our chat. So, without further ado, Here's my conversation with writer and technologist Azim Azar. Azim, thanks so much for joining me today. I thought it'd be useful for people listening if we um, started with a definition. So your podcast, your newsletter and your book as well focuses on exponential technology. What is exponential technology? What does that mean? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on this discussion. If we think about technologies. Uh, technologies are designed things that are meant to do something. I mean, that's their, their sort of primary characteristic. Um, and we can always measure how well a technology does something and we can measure the, the cost to us to create that technology. So in my definition of an exponential technology, it is a technology that improves in its performance, that is the measured way in which it does something, by at least 10% um, every year for the same cost. So in other words, it's rather deflationary. Uh, The one pound you spend today buys you X worth of performance from the technology. Spend one pound in a year's time, you'll get X plus 10%. Spend one pound in two years' time, you'll get X plus 10%, all plus 10%. And there, yeah. that all plus 10% is the, is the key. It's the fact that these gains compound over time, like compound interest. So an exponential technology improves at at least 10% for the same sort of cost every year. And that process must take be, be something that we can carry through for decades. Some technologies improve by more than 10, 20, 30% a year for just a few years. And then those improvements peter out. Um, And others uh, have this characteristic, this quality that those improvements can last for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And that's when we really start to see powerful effects. This perhaps is a little too broad a question, but 
in your view, what are the key pieces of technology which are going to drive changes in society and work over the next 10 years? Well, I mean, in, in my my book, I talk about technologies in four uh, major areas that will have very wide applicability. So those are the areas of uh, computing and artificial intelligence, uh, the areas of biology, the area of energy, um, and the area of manufacturing. And we're mostly familiar with computing because computing was the the first technology to have this exponential quality about it. Well, if many of you will have heard of Moore's Law, which was a, a sort of a relationship that said that every, every couple of years, the power of a computer processor for the same sort of price would, would double. I mean, I've, I've summarized it. It's more nuanced than that. Um, and that's really what we've seen in the computer industry since uh, the 19... 60s and frankly even before then. So those technologies um, in in computing, in in biology, which includes gene editing, it includes protein engineering, uh, precision fermentation, and those other domains of energy and manufacture are all going through a transformation that is driven by technologies that are improving at exponential rates. And focusing on work, are you optimistic about the future? Because there are plenty of books out there which lament the effects of, for example, AI on the future of work and the possibility that robots might rid us of our jobs. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's a simplification. But in general, do you see a positive future? What do you see as being the fundamental changes, perhaps in the, the, the short to medium term, at least? Well, the thing is that it obviously sells more books to say, um, hey, we're going to have no work in future and what will humans do? There's going to be an abundance of humans um, mm. and a, a paucity of jobs. There are going to be, uh, the jobs will be taken by the robots. Um, AI will make us all unemployed. I mean, those are amazing headlines and they'll sell books um, it, far more than, well, it's a bit complicated. Uh, and here's okay. why it's complicated. And this is how it plays out. Um, I mean, there's a reason why, uh, you know, Celebrity Love Island has a larger audience than, you know, the the latest late night show on quantum physics that appears on a, uh, you know, a tiny niche YouTube channel. Um, so if we want simple explanations, we can say there's going to be no, no work. Um, it's not borne out by the historical record, nor is it necessarily borne out by what we're seeing today, nor is it indeed borne out by economic theory. Um, I mean, and and I think I think you know what you will see is that um, it's very clear that when you start to automate roles, uh, you end up moving people from a task that they might have done um, to an, to another task, and in some cases that means that a job a job gets lost, and you're starting to see this in the banking industry, you know, the fi- the finance industry, um, but it's by no means clear that that is something that happens as a consequence of the technology rather than as a consequence of um, competition. So the world's most technically sophisticated retailer, at least in the West, in West outside of China, is Amazon. They have the highest ratio of robots per employee. They have uh, acquired, spent hundreds of millions of dollars buying Kiva Systems, which is a robotics company a few years ago. And they're heavily roboticized. When the COVID pandemic struck, mm. 
um, lots of companies put their workers on furlough. Amazon ended up hiring several hundred thousand people. And in fact, Amazon's headcount went up. So did Netflix's um, in that in that time. So it turns out that when we look at this one narrow aspect, and there are other aspects of how technology uh, affects work, that I view the arrival of automation and roboticization as being more about a competitive threat uh, in the economy than a, a naturally a threat towards towards workers. Essentially, the, the people who lost their jobs were not the people in the companies employing robots. They were the people in the companies who couldn't, whose companies couldn't compete with the companies employing robots. In other yeah. words, this is classically well-run companies do well and therefore do well for their shareholders and their employees and poorly run companies go to the wall. Uh, and if you're one of these companies that hadn't, for example, made the switch to multi-channel starting in 1995, when it was apparent that e-commerce was going to be a big thing, and certainly starting by 2007, when it was clear that mobile commerce was going to hit you, then you were going to be ill-prepared for the changes that were going to come. I'm not sure that's a roboticization problem, rather than we were terrible managers style problem. Historically, um, automation has clearly rendered entire classes of professions um, redundant. Uh, There were lots of horses um, employed as motive power on farms in the in the 1890s and 1920s and 1930s, and tractors do a much better job. And those horses no longer have those jobs because the horses didn't reskill to become, you know, yoga teachers or baristas or accountants or whatever they needed to do to participate in the late 20th century economy. Um, and so, so the, I think the, the point there is that that there are many, many more jobs and economic activity and innovation tends to create more better quality jobs. However, that is actually ultimately dependent uh, between the negotiation between employers and employees, and therefore the power dynamics of labor laws, employment regulation, unionization, collectivization. If labor is kind of relatively speaking, relatively weak in its bargaining position, then you tend to get lower quality work, even if the the volume of work expands. And we've seen that happen over the last 20 or 30 years. So so in my mind, the the debate about, um, uh, you know, automation and these new technologies is much more about how well do companies, are companies capable of competing? And how well can the less well, less competitive companies compete and do very competitive companies have unfair advantages? Number one and number two, um, to what extent does labor have that, that is the pool of the the individual worker or the pool of workers? How well are they able to uh, negotiate and argue for better employment terms and better conditions? Hence Amazon's troubles with unions uh, over the past six months, and and I, and I guess that is one of the consequences of this emergence of technology. And I think probably one noticeable and acknowledged point over the past year is that we've adapted fairly well to a distributed way of working in spite of perhaps many businesses claiming beforehand that it wasn't possible. And clearly that is a result of the ability to connect and the technology which allows us to to do that. I think if if we look forward, you can certainly see a trend towards 
decoupling work from employment. We're seeing this through perhaps, you know, initially through the gig economy. We're now seeing the our traditional view of the gig economy, which perhaps is people delivering food or, um, you know, dropping you off in a cab, extending mm-hmm. to other verticals as well. So, you know, it's probably pretty well established for sort of engineering and development, software development roles. See that for consulting firms as well. Do you see that trend continuing? How does that relate to that change in relationship between organizations and their employees? Well, I think the, you know, you're absolutely right to point to the fact that, um, you know, gig style work can exist in other uh, in other places. And uh, Odesk, or as it's now called, um, Upwork uh, has grown like crazy. And you can use Upwork to hire software developers and IT network specialists and copywriters and accountants and campaign managers. I mean, you know, you could build a sort of full service digital agency, frankly, um, by picking up up, um, contractors from around the world through something like Upwork. And it's incredibly powerful. You know, my my company doesn't need a full-time email delivery analyst. Uh, And so we hire the person we need and we pay a hundred bucks an hour um, you know, a couple of hours every mm-hmm. couple of months, and it, and it works very well for us, and it works very well for him. So you can see for particularly sort of defined tasks um, moving up to uh, these platforms. I mean, the other question is, to what extent can we coordinate more complex and nuanced tasks? And I would say that looking, thinking about your former industry, which I guess was sort of marketing and media style uh, business, is that in that business, we already understood that you could do that for complicated tasks, because how else did an, a TV commercial come together? You know, you got a freelance director yeah. and a freelance producer and a freelance makeup person, and uh, you, you pulled out a, a location scout. None of these people were on your books. You, you flocked them together, and that's how Hollywood largely largely works. So we know that quite complex businesses can be delivered in this style of, of, of work. We just haven't allowed for it um, elsewhere. But I think there's always a tension between um, the kind of costs of finding these this this flock of people and the uh, the the agility that you you require. So it works for a film or a TV commercial because you're going to spend you know nine weeks and two million pounds making it. Um, it doesn't really work if what you're doing is shipping widgets from A to B and it's the same task every single day uh, and at which point you may want to for yeah. the worker's sake say listen let's turn this into a contract but the other side of gig working is absolutely not has never really been designed for the worker which is you know university lecturers and nurses and cleaners who are on zero hours contracts that is purely driven by a desire to make business models more efficient starting from the the Microsoft Excel spreadsheet yeah I listened to uh, or re-listened to a podcast you did with the CEO of a company called Satalia yeah. the other day. And I'll put the link, a link to that in the show notes because that is a fascinating, I think you probably described it as a bit bonkers idea. Yeah, I did how, describe it as bonkers, yeah. How an organization can be structured. In fact, fascinating. This is an idea essentially of a decentralized organization. And actually there's, there's so much of that idea which looks to the future. But I wonder how realistic that future really is particularly outside the bounds of software development and engineering our views on technology are they driven by the fact that it's technology businesses who are often at the forefront well i mean someone has to be at the forefront and um you know the the thing is that you need to establish uh 
you need to establish new ways of of doing things um, when a new medium or a new technology comes out, and it, it take it takes a certain amount of time. Uh, when I was at the BBC uh, 20, ooh, 24 years ago, uh, and I was one of the first sort of handful of people hired um, to build kind of internet stuff for them, um, the executives still thought of websites as having a transmission date. Uh, and once you right. transmitted it, that was it. Uh, and so there was no sense that you could just go in and change a, a thing and that it wasn't really a tr- transmission date. It might be a go live date that you might have something live before you. Were, it was perfect. So you might run something in beta. And it took them a while. I mean, the BBC is now incredibly sophisticated around all of this, but it took them a while to understand that you needed new vocabulary. And that vocabulary sat on top of new processes, which st- sat on top of different organizational uh, structures. And, and so the question is, what is appropriate in different organizations at at different times? And how can you use tools to make that work uh, more human um, for, for, for the employee while still delivering what, what's expected? And, and I think that that does mean that you could imagine there being more and more changes, more flexibility brought in, even to jobs where we think there isn't there isn't uh, there hasn't been flexibility, and the question is: Should that flexibility come for the benefit of the worker, or should it come for because there's a punitive relationship between the employee employee and their staff? And and I think we're we're going to start to see that battle be be played out, um, and it'll probably fall in more in favour of the worker over the coming fifteen or twenty years. And I suppose a continuation of that theme, although just taking a slight deviation. So I've heard you discuss the idea that technologies too important to be left to the technologists mm-hmm. so, so i'm interested in what risks this concentration of power in big tech brings to workers particularly but to customers and society more broadly and how do we even approach trying to fix that is it regulatory is it mm-hmm. something which has to come from within an organization and and how realistic is that as the power seems to just grow and grow uh, well, I think, you know, well, let's start with your last few words, which is the power seems to grow and, and grow. Uh, in the last in the last two years, uh, Facebook, I'm going to um, Facebook has launched its own Supreme Court. We normally think of uh, courts as being something that the government does. And actually that because of rule of law and separation of powers, ideally, the court has its own unimpeachable mechanism that's independent of the political system, right? It's independent of the executive or the legislature. Very, very true in the US, less true in the UK, but but sort of still an important juridical principle. And so, so here we have Facebook saying, no, we're going to, because, because external laws are not strong enough, we're going to create our own court. And Amazon does something similar with its sellers, right? They they essentially say that when you sign up um, to, uh, uh, to to certain types of Amazon services, all disputes get adjudicated within our own mechanism. Now we're used to this idea of private arbitration um, rather than um, public public law sort of dealing with things in areas like uh, shipping law, and that's not such a problem in shipping law because. The, the shippers are have similar amounts of power. But when you're somebody selling 
um, squishies on Amazon and you're negotiating with Amazon, Amazon has all the power, right? So if it's their judge making the decision, it's quite likely that that is not going to be fair for you. So I think that the that's just one example of the creeping power of these of these companies the question is what do we what should we do about it and i think that the the main game here is that governments need to figure out how to step up and how to establish um the rules to ensure that this is that this is fair we're on the back end i don't know how old you are ollie but i'm a child of, of margaret thatcher in the sense that I was seven when she came to power. And when I moved to the UK, you know, we were well into the start of that terrible uh, recession um, where UB40 released that song, I am a one in 10, uh, you know, uh, adult unemployment reached 10%. You had the YTS scheme and uh, it was kind of hideous, right? And then the miners' strike. Um, we're at a point where government was v- viewed itself as the problem to lots of things. Um, mm. And and we've had forty years of that orthodoxy, and that orthodoxy has left, uh, coupled with the pace with which technology has changed, has left governments a bit uncom- lacking confidence and lacking capabilities to ask the right questions of these these companies. Now we clearly absolutely need the capabilities that they have delivered. The question is, do they deserve all the power that they? alongside those capabilities or should we tackle them so i would expect and want there to be it's not so much regulation it's it's really asking of the right questions so for example being able to say that um we totally understand that your business is complicated mr massive platform or madam masses platform and we understand that there are judgments you have to make within it um but we want to understand the process by which you come to those decisions and judgments. We want to see that there is a due and fair process and we reserve the rights to intercede when we think that you are skewing the market. And where we, the government or the, you know, or our, the legislation are going to make sure that we're as transparent as we can be uh, uh, on, on those issues. So, so I think we actually need, you know, we have a problem of there being too much power and too much power in whoever's hands it is, you know, whether it is an executive or uh, a business person or a technology platform is always a problem. So, so we need to go back to traditional approaches, which is to say we have to restrain this power and we have to investigate it. But the solutions we actually use to do the restraining may not be traditional ones. Those may have to be new ones that we come up with. I wonder if it can come from within as well. I think thinking about Facebook, so clearly they're, they're attempting to establish legitimacy with the oversight committee. And let's be honest, there's some pretty credible heavyweight yeah. people seemingly in that group. And yet it, you know, holding sway over, you know, a single person who holds so much power than an organization seems unrealistic. But if you look at Google, for example, and some of the the discussions amongst the staff and how that is beginning, it seems, to influence some of their policies on certain matters. I wonder if that is one way that change can be made or whether actually uh, realistically as employees, we're incentivized to, to follow the line. I wonder whether there can be a sort of a pincer movement between government and people from within the organization. Yeah, I think that's really, uh, that's really important. Um, this is a, an incredibly uh, big and contentious issue for which there are no simple, uh, simple solutions. Um, and so I think each 
part ro- group has a role to play in discovering what works and what doesn't work. So employee activism of the type that we see in Google and the, the Google walkout where 10% of the employees walked out on, on a single day um, is really, really important, as is whistleblowing um, to help people understand mm-hmm. the processes inside those organizations and how decisions get made and why they get made. Um, and uh, that is that is clearly going to be one part of how this um, gets evaluated. But apart from a handful of people who went on to create um, very, very long-standing religions, like Gautama Siddhartha, who was the founder of Buddhism, very few people or organizations are capable of, of self-regulation over the long term, right? The, their own incentives will, will, will step, step in. Uh, and so we saw this with the, um, the Boeing 737 MAX plane that was quite prone to crashing, where it turned out after uh, we started to dig into that, that Boeing and the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority, had over years started to kind of transfer parts of the FAA's oversight on certifying Boeing's planes essentially to Boeing itself. Um, And so self-certification as a principle, it ended up being the case that actually these planes weren't really fit for fit for flight um, in some way. Uh, And so I think that the question I have is, do I genuinely believe that a, a, a company formed just like any other company suddenly found, finds itself capable of the right kind of pro-social self-regulation um, that has never been possible in the past, and they never did anything differently in their, in their start foundation. Um, I just find that um, hard to believe from a theoretical standpoint. And when I look at their act- actions and I talk to people in those teams, um, I find it... Uh, I, I mean, I just get more evidence that that's the case. And that's not to, that's not to blame them for it right it's it's like um uh it's just it's the nature of what they do and so you would expect in any um in any society that the process of kind of established good governance emerges through the contestation between the different actors within that society um and right now the you know self-regulation look do i want facebook to step in and stop live streams of massacres Yes, absolutely. Because in absence of anyone else doing it, they've got to do it. Is it sufficient mm-hmm. to then say that's how all difficult issues are going to be dealt with? No, it's not. Right. So when there's a fire, I will go. You know, you'll you'll ask your enemy to help put out the fire, but that's not that that's because there's an emergency. So I think we have to be really sanguine about what's possible with um, with self regulation uh, and and in in general, I. Um, I, you know, I, I also I don't I don't think it necessarily works. I look at other regulated markets like the financial services industry and heavy regulation there has not prevented the financial services industry expanding rapidly. In the automotive industry, we went in the US, there weren't mandatory laws to put seatbelts in cars until 1968. Car sales did not fall off a cliff in 1969. I mean, we're selling more cars than ever before, even though there are tougher and tougher regulations. So there's sort of their existence proofs that say regulation doesn't stop innovation or market growth. Um, but, but what regulation does do is it reduces your personal power. So no wonder people argue for self-regulation. As an aside, Rebecca Henderson's book, 
reimagining capitalism was an interesting take on this. I know you spoke to her last year as well. I um, did. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's good actually. Yeah. I recommend that book. Yeah. Talking about big tech and data. Mm-hmm. So as you alluded to, I've worked in digital advertising for many years and data has increasingly become a challenge. And with some of the changes in the cookie laws, that is changing in a tangible way for people right now. But there's this conversation often among people in the industry and within technology about us taking back control of our own data. Mm-hmm. I wondering what your view is on that. I mean, is that is it that simple? It seems a bit unwieldy for us to just be able to take control of our own data. Yeah, I mean, it's um, well, first of all, it's really difficult to do today. Uh, and it's difficult to do in the way that getting on the internet was difficult in 1993. Uh, uh, if you were at home at university, it was straightforward. You just went in and someone had got it to work. But but at home, it was very, very difficult to do. And it took software developers to get that, um, uh, get that right and make that process easier. So you could imagine that um, over the course of the next five or seven years, it would become easier and easier for people to uh, have applications that allow them to take control of their uh, their own data. I think that there's, but there's a really important critique about the nature of data um, and the data about us and how it can be used to exert um, power uh, over us. Uh, and and there, there are some examples. Um, again, I talk about a little bit of this in my in my book, uh, Exponential, w- where take a credit score. So a credit score is something that's incredibly useful. If you're trying to get a mortgage, the reason the cost of getting mortgages, one of the reasons is lower now, the sort of instantiation cost is that um, mortgage mortgage, uh, providers use credit scores based on your data trails from places like TransUnion and Experian to do a risk assessment. And that allows them to underwrite loans that would otherwise be too expensive to, to underwrite because you'd have to send a loan officer out to figure out whether we trust Ollie or not. So they so and in countries with with without good national credit bureau, you actually see far less consumer credit uh, and uh, and business credit, and that has real impacts on quality of life, right? Because it impacts ec- economic growth. The problem is the quality of the data that goes into this these scores is often crap. And to give you an example, I won't embarrass mm. them um, on this podcast, but I often do on Twitter. Um, one of the major credit bureaus does not have the bank account I have held since I was nine years old and is my primary bank account. 39 years of data they do not hold, Um, nor do they have my primary mortgage, um, which is absolutely baffling. Another credit card uh, credit agency um, has my bank, which includes the payments to the mortgage, but doesn't have my primary mortgage. Um, And so the data quality is terrible being able to talk to anybody there is impossible. About 15 years ago, I was essentially wrongly assessed on my data and, and I was ha- had to get a pay, pay 0.2% more on my mortgage for several years. Um, and so I'm quite cross about that. So bad data has real impact on us. Now, of course, bad advertising data has real impact on us as well because it will can be used uh, essentially to pollute our information streams um, it can be used in phishing attacks. And there are lots of there are lots and lots of issues around it. So, you know, my view is that when we think about the questions of data, 
we as citizens have to have many, many more fundamental rights around our data. And once those rights are established, we will, um, that will then allow the ad age, ad industry to figure out how and what they can do with it. But right now, the whole process is crap. It's full of dark patterns. Um, it's completely inauthentic. Um, I, I defy anyone to explain to me why, um, having looked for a sofa uh, six weeks ago, I'm still being pursued by sofas across the internet and why that is a good experience for me. Um, and I look at Criteo, for example, who is sort of, you know, candidate number one in all of this. And I say the measure of success cannot be that you put that same sofa in front of me hundreds of times for the six weeks after I bought it. I mean, or the four weeks after I bought it, it's absolute, it's an abomination. So I, I, I for one mass, hugely, hugely welcome, uh, the clampdown on cookies and third party cookies and data, uh, exchanges. I look for forward to the data brokers having their day in the sun, um, I look forward to a moment where the sale and resale of so-called value-add data that goes on um, in RTB uh, is is seen as a pariah activity. Um, I, I think it's it's long been um, a complete nonsense um, and has focused people on the wrong kinds of behaviours. So, I, I mean, I, I do take a position yeah. here. I'm a bit more sanguine and moderate in the book. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge, huge problem that has to be tackled. I mean, I also get the the sort of idea, which is you walked in, you looked at it, you abandoned your shopping cart, you went away. Why can't you prompt me? But the trouble is that I don't have as a consumer or as a citizen or as a user, I actually don't have any easy say or control for for what happens there. And the way the way the decisions then get made and you'll you know, you'll end up on. Uh, many media publishers because they wanted the incremental revenue would take the retargeting ads on their excess inventory. So I would be reading something like the independent website and actually getting this horrible experience. And as a consumer, I just didn't have a choice about whether that's what I wanted to, um, uh, to live in. And the fact that the internet started to look like Times Square or Leicester Square I think was problematic because there's a reason why most of us don't spend all our days in Leicester Square. And it's not about COVID. It's because it's a bit disgusting to be surrounded by all those ads all the time. Yeah. yeah I also think it, it's sort of just, it's a neat encapsulation about how people are using technology without necessarily using your brains. And they're actually lost contact with the human aspect of what they're trying to do. And advertising was sort of, always inherently a thing about building connections in some way. No, that's a really, I, that's a really important point. And I think that we shouldn't um, lose sight of the fact that also there are, um, there are, there is great advertising that is going on and, and that, that the media forms on um, things people are doing on Instagram, for example, uh, you know, I don't, I've had to start using Instagram again in order to kind of basically have a platform for when the book comes out in September. Uh, and I can, <laughs> the number of ads I've clicked on and the things I've bought on the Insta, on, on the Instagram feed, is just, it's, it's kind of outrageous. You know, they have yeah, these beautiful, you. silky LED lights telling a story and I'm like, mm, yeah, it's only 25 pounds. I think I'll do that. So, or, or some, some trainers I bought and what have you. So, 
yes, there are places where this is this is is happening, and clearly Instagram is using, uh, or the advertisers using data that in- Instagram is making available. I'm not sure what it what it is, but it's a better form than what I feel we we we, we saw this kind of race to the bottom. The, the very worst of which were those um, what were they the, the content retargeters like um, Outbrain and Taboola, who used to put the junk on the bottom yeah, yeah. of every every website. Yeah, I mean that was still just there. hideous. Yeah, no, because I get yeah. these ads, which is like, oh. are you 50 to 60 and suffering from arthritis in North London? It's like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. No, no, a few years still. Okay. One last question for you. So yeah. clearly this, uh, your book, which is out in September, is looking to the future. Mm-hmm. You, um, I, I, again, I think I heard you want to say that every role you ever had, every job you ever had was something that hadn't existed five or 10 years before. Yeah. I think if you were, if you were talking to your 22-year-old 20, self now and you were just you know, leaving university and looking out there, what industry or what career do you think you would jump into? Which would be the thing which would excite you most? Uh, it's a great question. And um, I'm going to steal this from uh, a tweet from someone sent about three or four weeks ago where they encapsulated it perfectly, which is that you know the most important things that we are going to do are going to be revolve around uh, eliminating carbon. Uh, and so it will be uh, around either pulling carbon out of the atmosphere or finding ways of doing our modern economic activities without using that carbon. And so that is beautiful because that involves agriculture, it involves architecture, it involves energy, it involves you know machine learning and compute software, it involves... How do we produce pharmaceuticals without using oil derivatives? There's a whole kind of enormous, every part of the world gets touched on that. So a sense that we're all going to become carbon engineers uh, in the next 25 to, to 30 years is going to be really, really valuable. And, and that, that's even true in your, in your area, right? So in, in the area of digital marketing, you're going to be wanting to ask questions like, um, you know, in order to pitch this properly, I need this product properly. I need to know its full life cycle carbon impact because I'll need to put that in the collateral or in the pitch or in the meeting um, uh, and uh, and those those types of, of questions. So I would definitely say that the the framing has to be understanding the carbon cycle and how we how we're going to all participate uh, in this in this kind of species level challenge there's no risk that we will overshoot here right the 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 risk is actually that we will undershoot um and and so where we are today of course there's lots of good news coming out now increasingly from sort of technology and renewables and so on but that's a little bit like saying oh yes i've bought my trainers for the marathon uh, that's not like completing the marathon, right? There's there's a lot a lot more work uh, to be done. So yeah, that would be would yeah. be my lens. Um, and then there are kind of specific functional skills, technical skills that you might want to then get according to that mission, which might be well, kind of machine learning, or it might be protein engineering, or it might be you know behavioral psychology sort of types of things. But there's a whole set of skills that would leaf off that. Well, Azim, thanks so much for your time today. I'm looking forward to reading the book, and um, hope you chat again soon. My pleasure, Ollie. Thanks very much. So that was my conversation with Azim Azar. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some of Azim's podcasts. 
In next week's show, I've got another of my favourite podcast guests, Bob Glazer. We'll be talking about leadership and remote work. So until then, have a great week.